And so that got me thinking about the concept between is a castle meant to be that refuge and that fortress to protect us from the outside that's pressing in, or can it be a place of danger within and of itself and inside its own walls? Welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked. I'm your host, Allison Treat. Hello, readers, and welcome back to the podcast. This is episode 11 of season five. And today I'm going to be sharing a conversation I had with Jamie Jo Wright about her new book, The Vanishing at Castle Moreau. This book just came out Tuesday, and Jamie and I had such an interesting conversation. You might know her as the writer of many kind of dark, mysterious, spooky books, um, The Haunting at Bonaventure Circus, among others. But we're going to be talking about castles and the darkness around some of her writing and why she writes dark themes and um, how she believes that can bring light to the world. So I just know you guys are going to enjoy this conversation. Jamie was a delight to talk with. She is not um, a depressing person at all. And she was a lot of fun. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Jamie Jo Wright. Jamie, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, it's good to have you. Your latest novel, The Vanishing at Castle Moreau, just released on April 4th. Can you tell me mm -hmm. about this book? Yeah, it was a it was a fun book to write. Um, I set a castle in Midwestern America, which is always a fun thing to do. And, mm. you know, it's, you know, not to be confused with um, White Castle and hamburger sliders, but um, <laughs> if you're familiar with Midwestern restaurants at all. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> but yeah, so it's basically, in short, it's a dual time story, which means part of it takes place back in the late, 18, uh, late 1800s. Mm -hmm. And part of it takes place in current day. And um, it's the story of this castle and how its reputation over the century has been that women consistently seem to vanish within its vicinity and it's tied to the castle and there's a deep lore and mystery around it. Um, and the present day tale is basically the discovery and the solving of prior mysteries that took place over the century. So, yeah, I, um, I'm reading it now. I'm about a quarter of the way in and it's, both fascinating and frightening, as <laughs> most of your novels are, <laughs> or all of them, I guess. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. So what, what inspired you to write this one? This one is, um, I will say this one has some twists and turns in it that are a little bit different than some of my other books. If readers have been following my books, if not, then that's fine. Um, but this one was an inspiration because I was thinking a lot about frankly, about castles. And I, I did some research into um, a woman who lived in the 15th, 16th century, and her castle was anything but a fortress or a refuge. It was a place literally where women um, would disappear, and she was eventually charged with their murders. Um, and so that got me thinking about the concept between is a castle meant to be that refuge and that fortress to protect us from the outside that's pressing in, or can it be a place of danger within and of itself and inside its own walls? So I started asking those questions of myself, and that's sort of where the story became to come into existence. So it really started with the castle. It did. It yeah. Did. And the castle is like 
almost a character in the book. It is very much so. Very much so. I couldn't have set the storyline anywhere else because it definitely requires the element of the Castle Moreau. Right. Um, So you actually have kind of three different timelines in the story. I mean, I'm not that far into it, so I don't know how far you take the like early, is it 1800 or 1801? 1801. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. But you know, the other two definitely take center stage. Which, which one was your favorite to write and why? Oh, it's really difficult because they're so intertwined that sometimes Mm -hmm. it's hard to separate them. But I will say I did enjoy the aspect of the point of view from 1801. Um, That is one of the things that's a little bit different from my books. I don't typically have a first person point of view. Mm -hmm. And this one just cried out for it. And so it was fun to write. And it's also one of those things that really starts threading that mystery and making you go, what on earth is happening here? <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, that's fascinating. So what inspired your love for all things Gothic? Oh, you know, I've been a reader since I was four. And um, my mom <laughs> said I always loved the stories that had little mystery elements to it, whether it was a lost puppy or... <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, as I got older, it was the Nancy Drew and the Trixie Belden and all of that. But then yeah. in high school, I started, you know, getting introduced to the classics, which is typical of that, you know, literature class type thing. Right. But I got introduced to um, Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights and Pride and Prejudice. Mm-hmm. And all my friends were going on and on about Pride and Prejudice, which was, you know, in itself a good book. But I was going on and on about Jane Eyre and I adored Wuthering Heights and everyone was like, it's so depressing. I'm like, it's so dark and wonderful. (laughs) Right. So I don't know. I think there's a fascination with the unanswered questions in life and the things that create mystery. And I've always just enjoyed that element of gothicness that goes with it. Yeah, that's interesting because reading Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights as a teen as mm-hmm. you did. Um, I I did not like Wuthering Heights as much as Jane Eyre. I think it was more because I felt like Jane Eyre had a, um, like a, it came around to kind of a redemptive purpose in right. the end, but I didn't yeah. feel that with Wuthering Heights. And I don't know, I haven't read it recently. So. Oh, you're absolutely correct. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wuthering Heights is, you know, not something you want to read if you're already feeling down. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's what I remember. <laughs> yeah. Um, however, I think, I mean, I've only, so I haven't read all of this, but I have read mm-hmm. um, The Haunting at Bonaventure Circus. And okay. um, I think you more, you bring it around to that um, conclusion, you know. The, like, yeah. So I'm just wondering, you know, you write for Bethany House, you write Christian fiction, mm-hmm. but it's very spooky and a little scary. Mm-hmm. So how do you balance the redemptive with the macabre? Yeah, it's a good question. And I've thought about it a lot. Um, You know, outside of the cliche answers of, well, you know, I put a lot of prayer in the stories and things like that, which I absolutely do. Mm -hmm. Um, I've I've always found that, you know, really, if you take the Lord out of our life, we really do live a very macabre life, you know, without Christ within our life. And so from one standpoint, it's, it's really taking those two points of view and juxtaposing them as here's what life would be like if we're really set on our own path and our own journey and we're you know we either we're either resolved to or we're forced to solve it on our own versus 
if we find that hope in the creator, in the Lord, and in what he offers. And so really showing the opposites and then bringing them together in a way where the characters start saying, hey, there is actually light. There is actually potential to turn the macabre into something hopeful. Um, and that's really what I strive to do in all of the stories. Yeah, I, I had not thought about that before, that <laughs> there is so much dark in our lives. And it's, it's there is that you bring, I mean, I, you know, I had thought about the darkness in our lives, but right. not in relation to your books, that it's, it's a great sure. opportunity to show where the light comes in. Right. Right. And I think there's so much in the world right now that is, for lack of a better word, is very melancholic and very depressing. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter where you go and who you talk to, everyone is really wading through their own form of darkness. And I think one of the misconceptions within the Christian walk is that somehow we are supposed to be so hopeful and have such faith that we kind of, I don't want to say coast, but we get through those dark times easier. And I think in some ways we do, mm -hmm. but I think in some ways we struggle equally with yeah. those that don't have Christ because we're still trying to grab hold of that faith and allow him to infuse us with the strength to grab hold of that faith. And um, I think it's really important, even within Christian fiction, that Christianity isn't painted so hopeful that it's unrealistic and people are going, where am I failing in my Christianity? Because I don't have that kind of hope. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. So in this book in particular, what are some of the themes you hope readers pick up on? Absolutely. Um, the biggest theme that really resonated with me when I was writing it was the concept of refuge. Um, mm. And the verse that came to my my mind more often than not was, just that simple line, God is my refuge and my strength, my ever-present help in trouble. And really what we have in this book are different women in different time periods, all of them facing um, trials um, that really center around something more specific, not just general trials, but something that's, you know, around family dysfunction or some sort of an abuse within their life, whether it's um an alcohol abuse or physical abuse, um, et cetera. And where is God in that when it wants to swallow you like, you know, a vacant, gaping, dark castle might um, mm. just eat you alive? And is there any escape? Is there any refuge? Um, I think as, as little girls, and that's one of the reasons why on the cover, I, I asked my publisher this time to put something pretty because most of the time I don't have pretty on my covers. They're usually mm -hmm. very gothic. But I asked for apple blossoms because I wanted something pink to represent the femininity of the questions of when you're a little girl, you look at a castle and there's Prince Charming and there's mm. the knights in shining armor. And then when you get older, it's like the castle grows cobwebs <laughs> and it grows evil places and the knight in shining armor disappears and the villains come out. And, you know, it's like the fairy tale turns dark um, yeah. so often once we reach adulthood. And so that's really the overarching theme of the story is God is our refuge. And where do we as women find that knight in shining armor in the Lord in a world that is just not fulfilling that fairy tale fantasy? Right. Wow. I really, I love that. I, that concept is great. Yeah. Um, so I want to pivot a little bit and talk mm -hmm. about your path to publication. Can you tell yeah. me how you became a published author? Like, did you oh, always absolutely. love to write? 
I did, except my dad almost ruined it for me, which we laugh about today um, because <laughs> I was homeschooled. And so my dad and I, for the record, are extremely close. He reads the first copies of all my books. So oh, awesome. he's been my biggest champion. But when he started to teach me creative writing, he was trying in his way, which was accurate, to teach me how to outline a story so you have your bullet points of how to write. Mm. And I don't think at that point in time, anybody had understood the concept of the difference between someone who's a plotter versus a pantser, where mm-hmm. the pantser's just kind of like, oh, we're just going to see where this goes. And the plotters make the outlines, right? And I kind of fall right in between the middle. Like I'm yeah. not extreme on either end. So I always tease my dad that he almost killed my love of writing at the very beginning when he forced me to write outlines. And I was, <laughs> my free spirit was confined to a cage. Um, but right. after that, Long, long story short, um, if anybody's tried to pursue publication, they know it's a long journey. And um, I went through periods of time where there were some years I was writing and I was submitting to agents and publishers, and then I would take a break. And it wasn't really until 2016 that I signed with an agent. And that was because um, I met her at a writer's conference and Mm -hmm. did my 15-minute pitch and thankfully did not terrify her. And <laughs> and then she offered to represent me, which was great. And then my story as far as getting published by Bethany House was actually kind of comical. Um, my editor found me on Twitter and sent me a private message asking if I could send her some story information. And I thought she was scamming me. <laughs> <laughs> and not that, you know, my stories were valuable enough by any means to steal, but I'm like, I am not sending stuff to some random stranger off of Twitter. <laughs> and I emailed a friend of mine who was in the publishing industry and was an author. And I said, is this person even remotely legit? And she emailed me back within a half an hour. And she's like, oh my goodness, she's <laughs> really from Bethany. Do not delete that message. <laughs> oh, that's funny. And so after that, it was kind of history, so... Yeah. So you sent her the information she wanted. and Yes. Yes. Yeah. So was it your first book that won a Christie? Because yeah. I was mm-hmm. there for that award ceremony. I actually oh, remember. Yeah. <laughs> I, that's the only time I ever attended the, the Christie's. Um, okay. But I remember you accepting your award. I don't know why it just stuck in my mind. Later. <laughs> I was like, this, I'm hearing all this about Jamie Jo Wright. And I, I remember that she was there that yeah. night. So yeah, what I was that moment that was like? F- that was a, a surreal moment. Yeah. Um, I had some of my best writing friends had come and we'd kind of turned it into a miniature retreat. Mm. And then um, I knew that my husband and my kids were back home in Wisconsin um, mm-hmm. and they were watching it streaming online and um, being hearing the, and the way they do the Christie awards is they don't say, and the nominees are, <laughs> and the winner they tell the nominees and then they read the first line and I had forgotten what my first (laughs) line was. So I'm just sitting there and my friend on one side and my editor on the other side start literally pummeling me going, that's you, that's you. And I'm like, it is? Oh, that's my line. (laughs) Because I really didn't expect to win. You know, you're like, you're nobody, you're a rookie and you're up against inexperienced writers. I'm like, this is this is fascinating that I'm somehow even sitting here at this yeah. table, you know? Yeah. Um, so that was exciting. And it was probably more exciting afterwards when I called and my kids were, oh. you know, screaming. They were little and, you know, it's mommy won, mommy won. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exciting. 
can you tell me, so you mentioned that you're like in the middle between plotting mm-hmm. and panting. So mm-hmm. can you tell me more about your research and writing process? Yeah, I'm, you know, I have people ask me a lot how my writing process is. And I, I pretty much say, don't ever copy anything that I do as far as a schedule, because <laughs> I have six months between books um, as far as deadlines. So I write one book every six months. And I do this thing where my research and my plotting, what plotting that I do, um, is all in my head. So mm-hmm. if you were to come to my office, you're not going to find documents and organized files on my computer. I, it's like I'm watching a movie in my head over and over and over on repeat. And then I keep listening to podcasts and reading more stuff and it just kind of adds to it. So really what ends up happening is I get down to the wire. I'm that annoying person in the college dorm who the night before goes, oh, I actually have to write this paper. <laughs> And then I write the paper or I write the book. So, you know, I typically will write the book in about four to six weeks. Oh, my goodness. Uh, But the rest of the time is think time. But it's not like I'm just procrastinating. I'm literally just completely immersed in my head. So you must have an amazing memory then. Well, my husband would say no, because I store all my fiction in my head, which leaves very little room for anything else. (laughs) (laughs) I see. Because I could never keep all those facts. Um, I don't know. Yeah. You know, the internet helps. I mean, if I know approximately where I went or what I'm looking for, I can go back and reference. And I every now and then I'll jot down on a poster or something. So like right now I have literally the book that I'm writing right now, my entire notes are written on a table napkin. (laughs) I'm, I'm trying to follow in the footsteps of Abraham Lincoln with the Gettysburg Address. And, um, so this one is on a napkin, just like he did. So wow, we're going to see if it works. That's interesting. (laughs) And then if you've ever talked to somebody like Sarah Sundin, she has three ring binders. They're color coded. They're indexed. They're just amazing. Yeah. I just talked to her last week. Did you? (laughs) (laughs) But I didn't talk to her about that. I need, she has told me about her research. You have to talk just about her research process. I mean, it's to the point where you're just like in complete and utter awe. And I feel like a fraud after that. Well, everyone has their own process. It's so interesting (laughs) to learn about because, um, you know, then I, I also talked to Kimberly Woodhouse, who's very Mm -hmm. organized and, and she uses Scrivener. So I guess you don't use Scrivener because- I don't use Scrivener. Scrivener scares me. Okay. And I did start using it um, at the very beginning of my career and realized it was going to take me more time to learn it than it was to actually Mm. write a book. So I actually use an online software. It's all based in the cloud called Dabble, um, Dabble writing software. And I really like that too, because it's constantly saving. So like every few seconds, if something goes wrong, I I literally never lose anything. That's nice. So, but you don't need all the, like, I just think about the tools of Scrivener are oh, really right. help with like organizing your yes, research no. and stuff like that, but it's all in your head. So you don't need. Right. Right. Yeah. Scrivener was kind of like stuff. my dad saying here, build an outline. Right. And I felt like somebody's putting me in a cage. So I don't know if that's a good practice or not, but that's how I work. <laughs> right. Well, I think it's, it's fascinating that everybody is so yeah. different in their approach and right. what works for one person would not work for the next person. Exactly. Yeah. Um, So you mentioned you're working on another novel. Can you tell us about Mm it? Yeah. um, I've got another novel coming out in October of this year called The Lost Boys of Barlow Theater. Mm -hmm. 
So we are finishing up edits on that one. And that one's been a fascinating one to write as well. Um, it's actually based off of a theater in my local hometown that was built by Al Ringling, who was part of the Ringling Brothers mm, Circus. Yeah. And so I give the theater uh, its, its own fictional name. Um, because if you're a local to anything Ringling Brothers Circus, you better get it right. <laughs> so right. <laughs> I'm like, eh, being that I'm not Sarah Sundin, I am not going to rely on my memory to get all these facts straight. So we're going to fictionalize this theater, but it's a really fascinating story. And there's, um, as far as the theater here locally with, um, supposed hauntings and weird things that happened. And so, you know, mm. we all love that haunted theater. And so that's what I've been working on for October. Yeah, that's great. So I have another question Yeah, about, like you said, you've always loved to write. Has it always been, have you always written mysteries? I guess is what I want to say. Um, has it always had that kind of creepy, spooky vibe? Um, no, it hasn't. When I okay. first started writing as a teenager, um, I, w I read Tracy Peterson like voraciously. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was thinking more historical romance. Okay. Um, and then I liked adding in some suspenseful elements into that. And then it's just kind of slowly evolved, to be perfectly honest. And I think as I've gotten older, I don't know if I want to say I've gotten more dark. <laughs> I mean, if you meet me, I'm not wearing black lipstick and I don't right. have like massive amounts of black on my body, but. You're um, not like the author in your book, The Vanishing at Castle. Moore. No, <laughs> not at all. In fact, I had one reader who met me and didn't believe it was me because she said Jamie Jo Wright could not possibly be this funny and wear red <sighs> and bright colors. It just, she's like, where's the real Jamie Jo Wright? And I'm like, right here. <laughs> Sorry. That's great. My first publications were three novellas mm. through Barber Publishing, one of which was a historical Western romance, and then the other two were historical romances. So my actual first published work was historical romance, and mm -hmm. um, from there, my agent and I kind of were like, yeah, this isn't quite you, and then we went off into the dark and the dreary. Yeah. <laughs> so this is you, and- yes. You don't think about writing anything lighthearted. <laughs> <laughs> lighthearted? Um, no. If you if you ever follow me and Pepper Basham on Instagram, she's yes. the queen of you know, kisses and swoony romance, and I'm the dark and gothic. And we have this banter that goes back and forth on Instagram all the time, showing the inevitability that I will never be lighthearted like she, and she will never be dark like me. Um, so that's kind of fun, but I've yeah. thought of writing other genres, but not like lighthearted. It'd be more mm -hmm. like, you know, speculative fiction or mystery or different things like that. So. Right. Am I remembering correctly that you and Pepper had a podcast together? Yeah, or? we actually do have a podcast. Oh, we you still it, do. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We call it smooches and stabs. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because she's got the kissing and you have the yeah, I have the stabbing <laughs> and yeah, we basically look at historical stories and and try and rewrite them according to our genre. Um, oh, neat! So you know, she tries to romanticize things that just really shouldn't be romanticized. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay. And you also, do you have another podcast as well? I do. I have my own podcast called Mad Lit Musings. And that's where I sit down with other authors and we'll talk about their releases, but we also like to talk about the biblical spiritual themes behind their books. So we talk a little bit about books and then we start talking a lot about life. So Mm, that's cool. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. I'll have to listen to that now. Um, So this is a question I ask all my guests. Okay. How do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? Mm, that's such a great question. History has a very, very, very distinct impact on the present. And I think until we understand choices and actions from history, um, we aren't necessarily fully prepared to make wise choices in the present. Mm. Um And I even look at just generational impacts, not necessarily massive historical, you know, landmark times. Like you can look at World War II and come up with an entire philosophy of how to avoid a World War III. Um, But I like to look at history as a generational thing. Like how did my grandfather's choices impact the choices that I'm making today? How did his faith impact my faith today? Um, And I think that's where history becomes really alive when we can see answers to certain things in our lives because of the legacies that have gone before, whether good or bad. And um, it can bring a lot of clarity. Mm, That's true. Great answer. Um, So Jamie, this has been a wonderful conversation. What is the best way for listeners to follow you? Absolutely. Um, They can follow me at jamierightbooks.com. And I have all my social media links there. They can sign up for my newsletter. Um, I also have a link to my podcast, Madlit Musings, or they can go to madlitmusings.com for all of those episodes. Mm. Um, But I'm on all the major social ones too. So Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, it's just Jamie Jill Wright. And it's pretty easy to find. Great. Wonderful. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, my friends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jamie. I certainly did. And I enjoyed her whole book. It's definitely worth the read. I read the rest of it since we had that conversation. So um, I want to remind you of all the ways you can support the show. Number one, rate and review it on whatever app you love to listen. And um, then you can also go to the show notes, which are at alisontreat.com slash blog. And there you will find links to Jamie's books. And I will link to her podcasts and also some of the things we talked about, um, some of the other books we talked about and the episodes. Um, she mentioned Sarah Sundin and we talked about Kimberly Woodhouse. So I'm at, I will link to those episodes in the show notes as well. So you can find them from there. Um, also you can, after you rate and review the podcast and follow it or subscribe to it, make sure you, um, join our Facebook group. If you'd like to join the conversation, it's called historical fiction unpacked podcast group. You can get there from the show notes or just search for it on Facebook. And then of course we have an Instagram account and, um, We also have a Patreon where you can support us with your pocketbook. So check that out at patreon.com slash alisontreat. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T. Now, my friends, I would like to close us out with some words from R.A. Salvatore. No, I would not want to live in a world without dragons, as I would not want to live in a world without magic, for that is a world without mystery, and that is a world without faith. So keep reading historical fiction, my friends, spooky or otherwise, and I will talk to you again next week.